Welcome to the Redemptions Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. Man, well, good morning. There you go. It's good to be with you. I wanted to add to that song. Even when I lose an hour of sleep, you're working. Even when it's rainy and I'd rather be in bed, you're working. Slightly meant to be cute, but more actually meant to be true. And we're tired, we forget that God still wants to and can work. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited, not only because I love this book, I also had a five-hour energy, which the elders may tell me never to do before I preach again. Uh, but yeah, I'm excited to jump in this text with you today. We're in that series in First John, in a section of Scripture that uh, we're not going to play around, just, it deals with one of the most polarizing uh, maybe out there for some, and yet simultaneously avoided topics that you'll ever find. And we're going to spend this day with an hour less sleep processing it, uh, the Antichrist. Now, that topic is, is one that you may not have like any knowledge of. Maybe you've been away from it before, or, or maybe uh, you've grown up in a church that's heard it a lot. You're a fan of Kirk Cameron and Left Behind and all of that stuff. And maybe when you hear Antichrist, you start getting just really uneasy and thinking of a, a apocalyptic scenarios that are so far away that you can't ever grasp a hold of them. And you think of the world's destruction and things like that. That's not at all what John is going to be inviting us into and asking us to look at in this text for today. Uh, John will have uh, a very tangible warning for you and for me, though. Uh, And and the hope is that we would see this warning uh, not as uh, something terrible, but as an opportunity full of hope, uh, because through this warning, we can actually find transformation and beauty. Uh, So so that's the hope. Before we move into the the text for today, we still have to really understand uh, what's happened in this book, because the tail end of this text today really caps off the entirety of what we've done so far. So the drive has been in First John so far, uh, that fellowship with God and Christ, so vertical fellowship, uh, and then fellowship with fellow believers is the very reason that we are created. It's how we are wired. And because of that, it's our true source of joy. We are created for it. So when we find it, we are in a spot of joy, real relationship, real fellowship, real participation in this relational thing with God, His Son, Jesus, and each other is what we are made for. And without it, we'll always be searching. Without this uh, relationship or fellowship, we're always going to search for more, hunt for more, fight for more, yearn for more, because what we are made for will never actually touch a hold of. John calls this fellowship that we are made for eternal life and says the only way into this fellowship, this eternal life, is through Jesus, the truth that has come down. And then he starts pivoting into what we did for the last couple weeks to warn us of how sin will break down this fellowship that you and I are meant for. Three internal struggles he lays out at the beginning that will hurt fellowship. The very first one is the struggle to personally inside of us reinvent truth in light of what we want or think uh, or kind of sense. That is the first way that you can break down fellowship by retelling God who he is in your own eyes. 
The second is to reinvent right and wrong on your own in light of what you want or what you think or what you feel. And the third, the third sin that comes internally is to not engage lovingly with fellow believers and sisters, but instead engage with them and towards them in a form of what the Bible calls hate, which if we were paying attention, it's not nearly as hard to get into hate as what we may have thought. But here's kind of the the difficult part, even after those three internal struggles, we don't only have to be aware of our hearts internally. It's not just what's inside of us that can mess up our fellowship. We still have to be watchful of things externally, things outside of us. And this is why it said at the end of the text last week, be careful about how much you love the world. Beloved, be careful how much love you place there, how much identity, how much meaning, how much joy you place in the creation around you. Because if you aren't careful, your perceived treasures in the world around you will choke you out to where you cannot experience the greatest treasure, which is relationship with Jesus. Then today, the second external warning comes through what we mentioned before, antichrists. If you're tracking the first two chapters of 1 John have dealt with only this. Truth is the way to eternal life. There are five things in you and outside of you that will destroy that if you're not watchful, though. John is saying, be on guard. Be watchful. Be aware, my beloved, so that your joy through fellowship can be beautiful and strong and not hurting and anemic and drowned out. It made me think of 1 Peter 5, 8. It says, be sober-minded. This is to the church. This isn't a proverb over to the whole world. This is to believers. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. This isn't just to elders. This isn't to pastors. This isn't to MC leaders. If you are in Christ, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. John in this text, and and really the entire book, is drawing our attention to the uncomfortable reality that we really would like to escape out of at times, and that reality is that our faith is a battle, a fight where if your faith is in Jesus, you have a real adversary, and the text says it as clear as can be. That adversary hasn't forgotten you. There's no cosmic timeout. There isn't uh, a, a, a stop in things. That adversary, the devil, is looking at you, roaming around you, trying to find a way, any way, some way to hurt you, lie to you, and steal from you. This is what happens on this side of eternity. This is the battle that every believer finds themselves in, whether you want to be or not. You'd be like, well, I would really rather not be in that. I'm sorry, you don't have a choice. That's the entire point of Ephesians 6 that we dealt with a while ago, where Paul says, armor up church. Why? Because we can't remain asleep or unaware to the fact that we are in the middle of a battle. So because there is a battle waged against you and your Savior and your King, protect yourself so you don't get devoured. So your fellowship isn't destroyed. You may hear that and think, man, that sounds really dark and awful and like pretty, like I already lost an hour of sleep and that's kind of like not super exciting. I, I, I agree, it's, it is dark. But that's also what makes our future hope so great. Why the church for ages has learned to cry out, Maranatha, God, come finish this. Our end hope is that one day our king will come back riding a white horse with a robe dipped in blood and eyes like fire, and to him every knee will bow, and on that day the adversary will be destroyed and the battle will stop. That's our hope, but that day isn't here yet. 
So with this text, and as we read it, I, I pray that we hear it not as a uh, five-hour energied up TJ or a paranoid John writing to us, but as a loving warning from a friend who cares deeply from you in this author to help you navigate the world around you, especially around things that will potentially cripple your joy. We've had a lot of things. We can sense it, right? We've had a lot of things that have crippled our joy. John wants that not to be the case. So here's the text, 1 John 2, 18 through 19. Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all they are, they all are not of us, sorry. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Now be watchful for how many times you're going to hear abide here. If you heard from the beginning abides, or if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointed teaches you about everything and is true and is not a lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from shame or from him in shame at his coming if you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him this is the word of the lord i want to make a connection before diving into the specific points of the text about when this current situation kind of took place in the church. Uh, the, the situation, the context for the church that John wrote this letter to, remember it's kind of a network of house churches, these smaller churches around. Uh, he's writing to them during a period of opposition and chaos and a period of, of suffering. It comes to them, this struggle about antichrists enters in a spot where the church is weakened and beaten up, where they start believing that maybe they're losing the battle somehow, and and they start feeling crazy, possibly uh, wondering, did did I choose the wrong side in all of this? Uh, Am I the crazy one? This is where the church back there found themselves, and people were leaving left and and right, and there was this major uh, pressure from the culture around them to, to change what they were believing and what they were doing. Now, this by no means is a way for me to say that the anti-Christ struggle only shows up in times of hurt, but it's definitely a time where we're ripe to get into really big trouble when we hit suffering and anti-Christ come. We'll dive into why as we keep going, but here's what I want us to maybe consider. 
Is the position that they were at this period of suffering and just difficulty, is that not exactly where we are? A community forced largely to, to be separate for an entire year. A community who, who haven't been able to, to fellowship, who haven't been able to sing out together, who haven't been able to, to walk together in the ways that they're, they're able to. A community who's had our routines and our jobs and our kids and our life and all of this stuff drastically change in a world that is becoming less and less and less tolerant to what we believe and what we do. The spot of suffering or heartache of just plain offness is a prime moment for that same external danger that came at them to come at us. We cannot ignore that. John says it this way as he opened the text. He says it is the last hour. That's New Testament language, not for a literal hour, but it's a season of time or a period of time. Specifically, this part of time started after Jesus rose from the grave. On the exact moment he rose from the grave, the clock started for this period known as the last hour, and it'll be the last hour until Jesus splits the skies and returns again. So they were in the last hour, and we're still waiting on Jesus, so we're in the last hour as well. It's a season, not a literal hour. Many people have kind of read this and they thought John was making some sort of off prediction for Jesus' return, saying like, oh, he's going to come back in the next couple days. That's not at all what he was doing. He was telling them that this period of time, the last hour that they were in, and again, that we're still in, is going to be marked with, full of, Antichrist. Not just one hour, not just that day, this hour that we are in of them. He says it this way, you have heard that the Antichrist was coming, that they use that word the as in one specific, but already now, John says, many Antichrists have come. They're here now. The Old Testament book of Daniel, the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians, Revelation as well in the form of beasts, all talk about this man of lawlessness who will come and lead many astray. He'll deceive many people, try and overthrow Jesus or, or, or replace Jesus. He will ultimately fail, but in the process, many people will be seduced by this kind of counterfeit or replacement Jesus that will come. Because of these verses that talk about a man of lawlessness who will deceive, what has happened is for ages, churches have have kind of been like on the lookout trying to find that one antichrist, trying to identify the the one threat. John's, his kind of point here is be careful. He's not saying there isn't going to be one bigger antichrist coming. He says you cannot miss all the other ones that are already here looking for the one. Be careful. The Bible talks about another theologians have kind of grabbed onto this term. It's not just the one Antichrist, it's the spirit of the Antichrist that is already moving and that we need to be careful for. This is the idea. The Antichrist mission is already here. It was in their day, and it most certainly is literally everywhere in ours. They're already doing their work, and John is saying, wake up and watch. The last hour is full Now, as for who or what is this, like, one singular antichrist? Ready? I don't know. Nobody does. It would be useless to try and 
And yes, throughout history, there have been uh, many who've thought Titus, this Roman ruler who came in and, and did awful, awful things in, in, in the temple, that he was the Antichrist. There have been many for years and years and years and years that said the office of the Pope was the Antichrist, trying to replace Jesus. And others still think there's going to be one who is going to come. And most of the people kind of think that that's going to be some sort of political figure. None of that is worth trying to make a hard guess at. What we need to do is look for what's already here and now. What is the clear and present danger that is here? What are the antichrists that are moving and possibly even kind of wrestling or nestling up next to our heart? This raises the question, what in the world then is an antichrist? Well, John tells us in verse 22 and 23, words are difficult a little bit, though, in this um, Because the swath of what the spirit of the Antichrist does is much larger than maybe the words appear. But it says this, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. No one. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And John was saying here, anyone who lies about Jesus, denying that he is the Christ, the way to the Father, the only way, they are the Antichrist. In any way, form, subtle, or large, that is an Antichrist. And the strategy for the spirit of the Antichrist is really deception and seduction, though. Meaning, Antichrists don't always come and directly try and square off with Jesus and saying, I'm trying to overthrow him. That's not what really happens most often. Most often in our culture, Antichrists try and redefine Jesus. It's not that they try and kill him. They try and reinvent him. And in the words of a sermon that some of us elders had watched from Matt Chandler, it's counterfeits. It's not just a warring against Jesus. It's a counterfeit Jesus who tries to step into your life and act like the real Jesus, but they have no power to give you what the real Jesus does. All of those are antichrist. Whether you reinvent Jesus in what you want or go to something that isn't Jesus, all of those are antichrist. Daniel Aiken says this, the spirit of the antichrist always diminishes the person and the work of Christ. Subtle or large diminishments. Well, I don't think he was really like this. I don't know that he really did that. I don't know that it really works like this. All of those subtle diminishments of Christ are spirits of the Antichrist. The spirit of the Antichrist chips away at his deity and rejects his work of atonement. Guys, what does that mean? It means when you try and earn your salvation, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. Why? Because it's only Jesus' work that does that. Aiken's quote is helpful for me. Because it's so tempting for our world and even us at times to just kind of knock off the rough edge of Jesus that we don't enjoy in the moment change it, to, to mold it, just smooth it out a little bit. This molding of the creator by the creation in order to downgrade, minimize, or change in any way, shape, or form. This is the Antichrist. Guys, I kind of struggled whether to talk about this because in our modern move of tolerance, we have, we, we want to be nice, and we accidentally say, heretical things in that. 
at times. So we, we went on a missions trip right before launching the, the church to Kenya, and us and a group met with a group of Muslims, and, and one of the guys was trying to uh, try and find a way for these people in the city to kind of work together. And, and he started kind of saying, like, we're brothers and sisters, and we worship the same God. And, and in my heart, I'm like, no. Why? That, that religion is, is filled with Antichrist. Why? Because it denies Jesus. Does it mean that we hate them, we don't pray for them, we don't want them to, to know God truly through his only way to do so, the Son? Absolutely not. We want them to have that. That is clearly an Antichrist. We're not trying to be hateful in saying that, but we have to be wise enough to be able to identify it. To move towards tolerance, what does it do? Well, let's just rub off that edge that might cause a problem between you and me. That is walking into, and here's the hard part, it's walking into, because you're trying to be nice, an antichrist. Brother, you've remolded Jesus in order to make a friendship. Subtly, but it's so dangerous. Now, on the flip side, if you accidentally go to MC or your Bible study and you say something that portrays Jesus then less than he is, like we don't need to church discipline you for the error. How do we know this? Because if someone's like, hey man, you got that just a little wrong, you're like, oh yeah, oops. Okay, it was an accident. That, that's okay. The spirit of the Antichrist tries to, on purpose, mold or change or redirect who Jesus is. That's the spirit. So you don't have to always be worried, like, did I do it? If you're worried about doing it, you're probably not. On purpose, changing who Jesus is, though, it's extremely dangerous. Now, then John shows us, because you're like, well, why is it so dangerous? Why, why, what does it do? Well, John shows us, verse 19 and 20, what had happened because of the spirit of the Antichrist and people reframing Jesus? A mass exodus of the local church. That's what happened. Many members who they'd walked with for a long time, they'd shared meals with, raised kids with, uh, moved past big burdens uh, in life. They've, they'd done life together, and people that they'd sat with and cared for, and they were together for years and years and years and years. Now they're being ripped apart because some of them were walking away. They're leaving the church. Some of them are to abandon their faith altogether, and others of them are not going to abandon their faith. They're going to go connect with other people who worship the new version of Jesus that they like better. John is writing the church that's languishing. Guys, we've lost people before. It hurts. And he's writing to them. As dear friends, we're walking away. And in the middle of of pain and suffering to help them. Why? Because the temptation, when things are off and it looks like the church is losing and are we the crazy ones and, and people are leaving and I'm hurting and is it even worth it? Like, I don't know if I want to do community anymore because that hurts and it's painful and I hate when people walk away. What's the temptation? It's to blame Jesus or distance ourselves. Or if you don't do that, it's to begin to wonder subtly, are they right? Is Jesus less than what I thought he was? Do I need to relearn Jesus? Am I the wrong one here? Do I need to be taught a new version of him too? And John engages with this by saying, I'm writing to you not because you don't know the truth. 
You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you already have all the knowledge that you need. You do not need to be taught some new truth. This isn't saying, hey, guys, don't be teachable. It's saying there isn't some hidden thing. When we hit problems, how often it was like, what do I need to learn? And that problem just would go away. That's what they're thinking. He goes, no, there's not something that you could learn to make that not happen. You have the truth. You know the truth. You need no new truth. And, and then he does it. He launches into that section that I didn't read super well, where he says the word abide six times. He's teaching something really big. When pain is near, when truth is in question, when sadness comes, Chaos just rolls in like heavy waves on your head. When you feel beaten down like the church is losing, when you begin to wonder what's the point of any of this anyway, when your confidence in Christ is shaken, when you doubt whether you really know the truth or not, when your faith feels lifeless and anemic and you feel like the flame's about to go out, there's one clear call of what to do. Abide in him, abide in him, abide in him over and over and over. His answer to all of that is abide. What do we see Jesus do when chaos grew larger? I think it's one of the things that God is teaching me through Lent. When stuff gets crazy, do not hoard your time and lock down. Abide and run it, run it, God. Abide is one of those weird churchy terms though, right? Super clear and super vague all at the same time. Or if someone asks us, hey, do you know what abide is? You're like, yeah. Cool, I don't. Can you explain it to me? Not really. It's what me and the elders talked about this week and took us from there. Another sermon that we heard by Chandler on Revelation, or adapted it, I guess is the better way to say. We need to relearn abiding today as attention. Abiding is a matter of attention. Let the clarity of that just sit because you can't get out of it. We abide in what we give our attention to. That means we can abide in Netflix, we can abide in Facebook, we can abide in food. We can abide in golf, we can abide in shows, we can abide in sex. We can, we can, we can abide in anything. It's where your attention is at. We abide in what we point our head and hearts at. How? Through time and intentionality. This is the best way to understand it. Super simple equation on a slide. Time plus intention equals attention. Attention equals abiding. You will not abide without attention. No matter how orthodox you think you are, no matter the bumper sticker on your car, how you vote, whether you went to MC on Wednesday night, without attention giving to God, you are not abiding. Time plus intention equals attention, which equals abiding. John is showing us, do you want to keep your heart safe for Antichrist? 
then stay near to Jesus by giving him your attention. Hear the beauty of this, though. And you'll be so deep in his grace and mercy towards you that any counterfeit Jesus that comes your way, you'll immediately go, imposter, because I've walked with the real one, and I know, and he's better, and that is garbage. Do you want to be able to hold on to your eternal life in complete joy? Even when the world seems to be just blowing up and going wrong? Then stay near to Jesus. How? By giving him your attention. And watch as he guides and comforts you and fills you and stirs you and loves you. Friends, that's the point of the entire chapter. Do you want to hold on to truth? Do you want to obey his commands? Do you want to learn to love other people? Do you want to avoid the the deception of the Antichrist? Then the answer to every single one of those things in the first chapter is attention, 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 attention. Abide in God through Jesus or abide in Jesus through the Holy Spirit and watch your heart and your character be transformed. We're so busy trying to rub the genie God to say, make the chaos go away, when we don't understand he's there in the middle of the chaos. The beauty of our message is not a prosperity gospel. It's that his presence will walk with you in the chaos. When you walk near Jesus through giving him your attention. You're not trying to buy anything or prove anything, but when you do that, he will calm you, empower you, and sustain you. This is our defense, the great defender walking next to us and with us through attention. Guys, we need our faith redefined, not to become a different orthodoxy or find a fake light, but whenever we begin to say, Uh, or get twisted up and believe that our faith is primarily about obeying, we've gone off track somewhere. Our faith is primarily about abiding. When you abide, you will obey. When you try and obey, it has nothing to do with whether you'll abide or not. When we give our attention to God, he fills us up and pours grace into our lives and When we forget that, we will lose joy, we will lose perspective, we will lose felt relationship. And one of the things that I've struggled with over the last several months is I get really anxious because the peace of God doesn't reside. It's going to be cute when I don't abide. I want to do a little work here because I get it. If you already feel tired and overwhelmed, if your faith feels like a burden, if it feels difficult and you're, you're just shocked you're even here or listening today, then the call towards attention, towards giving time and intentionality to Jesus probably feels like a massive weight or a task. Or it feels like shame highlighting just another thing that you're not doing very well. That is not the point. That's not what John wants and that's not what I want out of this. Let's try and work through a metaphor or an analogy to try and explain abiding and why it's not duty and kind of how it works. I understand that analogies and metaphors always break down at some point and at some level, but instead of viewing abiding as work, as duty, as just another thing that we have to get better at, instead of viewing abiding as a source of shame and guilt, what if we were meant to look at it like our batteries? We have cell phones, right? 
all of us. What do you do with your cell phone at night? What is your nightly ritual with your cell phone? Plug it in. Why? Because that created thing will not function without power. Follow me. I know it's a metaphor. I know it's an analogy, but it will work. When you use it, the batteries will drain down, and it will not work unless you recharge it again. It will, you won't be able to do all the fun stuff. The, the, the reason that you got it, you won't be able to use it for that unless you plug it in and it gets recharged. If you forget to plug your battery in on your phone at night, what happens? The battery dies. Does, does the phone stop being a phone when the battery is dead? No, it's just not very helpful in the moment. You can't do very much because it has no energy. You cannot use the functions the way that it's meant to. It cannot be working in the way that it's designed to because it didn't recharge. This is how our souls operate. Abiding and our attention giving to Jesus is our soul's way of recharging. Abiding isn't about duty. It isn't about shame. It's meant to give you power so you can function in the way that you're supposed to in the kingdom of God. It's meant to sustain you, to, to help you. John is saying in here, this, this means that abide is not a demand for you to get better. Uh, the, the call to abide is a blessing and a gift given to you going, you can abide now. Come to the power. Come to life and, and, and plug in and see the power from Jesus given for you to walk through even the hardest situations because you're connecting to him despite the things around you. Sincerely, when you give Jesus your time and plug into him as your source, we know it. It changes your perspective, your life, everything that you do. Now, follow me further. What happens if you set your phone next to the charger, but you don't plug it in? You're tired with this analogy. Don't, don't be. Come back. You done that? Like, everyone's like, go and get it in the morning. Like, dang it. What happens if you set it next to the charger, but you don't actually plug it in? It's near the power source. Right there. wake up in your morning, you find it near it, right by it, but still the result is the same. No power, no function, no goodness, no life. Why? Because it's empty. Does that mean it's not a phone? No, it's still a phone. It's just kind of useless to you in the moment. Friends, this is where I think several of us are in the battle that several of us are waging in the middle of Lent. Lent, for me, is a metaphor for learning to plug in. Learning to abide. See, we struggle with feeling tired and beaten up and anemic and lifeless in our faith. And so we frantically, what do we do? Well, I got to fix it. And we run from thing to thing to thing to thing. Well, this will change it. This will change it. This will make me feel better. This will give me power. This will give me peace. Right? Maybe you go to Lent. We're like, I'm going to stop doing these couple things. And the first weeks are awesome. And then the second and third week are terrible all over again. 
maybe when things are crazy, you're like, well, I'm going to come back to church or I'm going to, I'm going to watch the, the live stream when I, when I wasn't before. And here's the reality that's been really hard is when many people are suffering and feel anemic, what they're doing right now is going, I think I'm going to leave the church because another church will fix this. Or maybe, just maybe, the reality is you've been by the power all along, but you've just not plugged in. And the Holy Spirit would show you and me together this morning. That we've surrounded ourselves by religious things. We talk about Jesus. We have good practices. We try and obey. And we have good routines. And we hang out with church people. And maybe the Holy Spirit would show us, but you never sit down long enough to get powered up. To abide to fill up by Jesus. This is the call. Come to the fountain of grace, to the fountain of life, and receive. We've got it twisted. We keep thinking that God's trying to reach in our life and take. And no, he's saying, in the middle of the fire, I've given a place to give to you. Will you just connect to it? Come to the truth. Sit there. Give him your attention and come to life through it. Let him transform him. Let him transform you. Let him bring you to life. Let him renew you through his power and his grace and his mercy and his kindness. But here is the rub. To plug in, you have to sit still. To abide in Jesus, you have to give him your attention. Again, back to the battle of Lent that I'm presented with and several of you are. In order to receive communion with Jesus and be filled up by abiding in him, you have to unplug from other things to plug into him. You cannot give Jesus your attention while all your idols really have your attention. Again, in light of what we were talked about with Antichrist, every time you plug into something to give you what only Jesus can, that is your Antichrist. Guys, we all go to things. You don't realize it sometimes. But we go to things to make things okay. I stopped drinking over Lent. A couple stressful situations happened. And you know what I realized? Everything in me said, where's some alcohol? Why? Because I wanted that to make things okay in a second. Not to get hammered. My heart just wanted to turn to something. And I started seeing the way it turns to media and the way it turns to TV and the, and the way it turns to drowning out and zoning out and projects and things. Every, that's, all of that is trying to plug into something else where only the peace and power Jesus can give you. That is a functional antichrist. And John is saying here, and maybe the Holy Spirit is saying to you here, the real thing is available and better than you have thought. Maybe you've tasted it at one point and it's time to again. Run to the real Jesus and find life. The last verses, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. All right, track. If, if there's a Savior Jesus who's done such great things, And he offers us fruit 
in him, blessing and power and perspective and peace all in him. And one day, the Savior will return like, like the skies really will part and he will be there. How do you want that moment to be? Do you want to look up and wonder? I wonder if that's a real Jesus or not. Do you want to be scared of like, I think that might be the Antichrist? Do you want to have some sort of vague recognition of like, that guy seems kind of Jesus-y? Essentially, like John says, do you want to shrink back in shame? Or do you want to be the one who shouts out, he's here. want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. That's him. Therefore, you should say, no longer shall I mourn. recognize my Jesus anywhere. Because I learned to abide in him long ago. Now I get to see him face to face praying. Now I see the sun. John's message is through abiding and we find true and real power in the word of God. Power to not be deceived. Me and Garrett talked about this week. Power to praise and sing even in the middle of suffering. Power to find peace in Jesus. Power to love each other. Power to obey. Power to persevere. Why? Because there's a love that washes over you. What John wants us to understand is abiding won't just pay off in the present, it'll pay off in eternity. You will not shrink back in shame. Your joy will overflow eternally. Since you've abided, you've already understood what connecting to him looks like, and it'll just be the completion of what you've This is my prayer that we hear this just differently. Come abide in Jesus. Don't just be around him. Don't just be near him. Don't just talk about him. Don't just watch other people abide. Guys, hasn't that been the thing for so long? You see somebody else who's stirred, and you almost just try and latch onto that when you could have the same thing. You latched onto Jesus with them. 
Don't just try and obey. Give him your attention. Connect to the Savior and see if he doesn't transform you. In light of that, let's read Matthew 11, 28 through 30 again. If you're on the edge of hoping for more and God to work, hear this text. Come to me. Right in light of what we're talking about, come with your attention. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The promise here is from Jesus himself. If you're heavy, if you're tired, if you're weak, if you need rest, if your soul is overwhelmed, if you just need gentle Jesus, come, 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 and abide. My hope and my prayer that over the last couple of days is, is this, that this might be a moment where personal revival starts for many. Why? Because we learn to abide. Maybe we would hear the call differently this time and just begin to test him. Come taste and see. You think it's not true or not possible? Go and abide and see if Jesus doesn't prove himself to be truthful. As this is the hope that we would learn to abide together and through doing so that we would be renewed and we would be reshaped. I pray that we find Take communion today. Man, you guys can come back up. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. As far as I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and we had given thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whether Jesus has had your attention or not, you can take and remember the beauty of what he has done. I pray that you would do that. And then just even beginning in worship, what do you have a prime moment for? Abiding. Just even in the last couple songs, you can give him your attention. That's what worship is, giving your attention to the Savior who's worthy of it. Connecting with him. And see, he doesn't just kind of work through your heart. My hope is that you and I would do that this week. Continually, that we'd be on a trajectory towards abiding. That on Easter we would celebrate. The God who's not far off, not angry. The God who is oh so close and done so much and working and near in our hearts always. If you have questions about abiding and you're not sure and you just want, I'd love to talk with you or pray with you about it. Here's, Here's my thing that I hope you understand. The gap between you and God is not so large that some consistent abiding wouldn't make him feel so close and working near to you. Would you stand with me? God, I pray that you would do your work. We need you.